Hello and welcome to Pontifax, ranking all the popes and finding them popiest popes who have ever poped before. I am Jamie. And I'm Rob. And we are here from... Totalus Rankium. If you like ancient history and want to rank your emperors, this is the podcast for you. Have you been enjoying ranking all the popes? Well, just imagine how much fun it will be ranking all the emperors. For example, find out what Constantine got up to apart from giving all those gifts to the Christians. He had a massive head, didn't he, Rob? <laughs> he did. Remember that time where he maimed a bunch of horses to try and <laughs> escape from someone? Yeah. And then he drowned his own wife in the bath and killed his son. <sighs> so anyway... Pope on over to our podcast. We hope you'll have a good time. It'll be a cardinal sin not to. Anyway, back to Brian Fry. Holy. Hello and welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 38, Pope Liberius. Like the catalog? Yes, that is kind of like that. But it is not actually about him because that comes from Liberia, whereas he is Liberius. So there's that. Are you ready for us to go into some very different territory? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know how we could be different, but I guess you're going to tell me. Last week, you know, we, we've covered Mark and we covered Julius and you weren't particularly impressed with either of them. No. You felt a little bit, perhaps, bored, or... They weren't quite hitting your level, so... <laughs> I conferred with a few people on the neck cankle issue, <laughs> and we decided to just go with the straight meathead. But that's not it, because meathead is definitely, like, a bodybuilder, you know, mm -hmm. like, that, that is know. a gym term. It is not for saggy necks, that is for muscle hamsters with the big bodies. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I don't know if that one works. We'll, we'll have to keep. We'll have to keep at it. You know, it hasn't gone live yet. So when when people actually hear it, I'm sure they will give us some some in, insight into what it should actually be. So I sure hope so. Sometimes they just ignore what I say. <laughs> no, I think they laugh at what you say. Let's do this Pope man, Pope Liberius. So he was born in Rome the son of Augustus, and he was noted to be a deacon during the papacies of Julius and Mark. So he's been in the church for at least 15 years minimum by the time that he becomes Pope. Yeah, if he was like, end of Mark, all of Julius. Yeah, so uh, early life done. That's all we got. Easy. Yeah, he is Pope now, and we are only a couple of minutes in. Over the past few weeks, we've been dealing with the Arian Controversy, and how this all played out with the various emperors. We had Constantine, and Constantine II, and Constans, and Constantius II, and just so we can keep abreast of where we are, by this point in our narrative, Constantine has died, Constantine II was defeated by Constans and has died, and Constans and Constantius II have been butting heads and using the Arian controversy as a way of getting to one another. So we need to use this to quickly catch up on a few things before we get to Liberius. And this is quick and brief for a reason. So here we go. Emperor Constans dies in 350. Oh. In a military rebellion in which a military commander called Magnentius was elevated to take his place. 
So Magnentius was an anti-Arian Orthodox supporter, so at least with regard to the church, he picked up where Constans had left off. So for the church, that bit hadn't really changed. And then in 353, Emperor Constantius II defeats and kills Magnentius in the Battle of Monseleucus and becomes the sole ruler of the empire. So we're back to one emperor now for a time. And now he's really grumpy. What's he grumpy about? Well, not only has he had to try and keep himself at the top of the empire, despite having his brothers constantly challenging him, and then he had to defeat a usurper on top of all of that, he's also tried to get this religion thing sorted his way, and that has not been happening. You know, he wants Christianity united under his Aryan-leaning tendencies, thanks to his Aryan friends. He wants the population restored to communion because he feels people have been alienated by Aryan persecution. He wants Athanasius out of the picture because he's so damn divisive, even though he's the one that allowed Athanasius to come back. And he wants one bloody religion under one bloody creed that's not as strict as the Nicene Creed. And none of this has happened for him at this point. So for him, it is time to crack down. And this is the state of affairs when Liberius is elected Pope on May 17th of 352. And his first act as Pope is he's going to take this situation head on and write directly to the Emperor Constantius with the request for a council to be held at Aquileia so that they could reevaluate the absolute lack of successes that we've seen in previous councils and to discuss how to handle Athanasius, who we remember, we left at our last episode, he's returned to his bishopric after two exiles. He's doing the job he was meant to do for once, and Constantius' mind had changed again, but there is still clearly a lot of tension over this bishop. So Liberius is saying, let's just get together empire-wide sponsored council. Let's do this. But Constantius has other plans. He would. Yeah, he doesn't really want to deal with Liberius's council, so instead he convenes a council himself at Arles in Gaul rather than Italy because he was currently wintering in Arles and he knew that the clergy in Arles would do whatever he wanted because he was right there to basically breathe down their necks. So when Pope Liberius's envoy, Vicentius of Capua, who, by the way, had also been Pope Sylvester's legate at the Council of Nicaea, when he arrives to bring Constantius Liberius's message, he gets snatched. Snatched? Yeah, they just full-on take the Pope's legate. They're kidnapping people. Yeah, and then they force him to preside over the council that Constantius is now holding, and in the process, force him to renounce support for Athanasius. Rude. One source suggested that Vicentius actually agreed to give up on Athanasius only if the council agreed to condemn Arianism and that they came to some sort of agreement like, yeah, okay, you do that, I'll do this, we'll do this together. But then they didn't hold up their end of the bargain. So Vicentius is caught condemning Athanasius with absolutely no payoff. They don't actually go ahead and condemn Arianism, because why would they? Everybody is under the thumb of Constantius, who's right there. <laughs> so so this clearly doesn't go over very well with the papacy. No. In reaction, Liberius wrote to Hosius, the bishop of Cordoba, and he expresses his grief and his heartbreak 
over the fact that Vicentius has agreed to condemn Athanasius, even if he was forced to. He says he actually wished he would die rather than be perceived as having agreed to this heretical compromise that Vicentius now represents. Wow. Yeah, this is important for later, so put a pin in that. He would rather die than seem to support this decision. And to top it off, Pope Liberius receives a letter from the Arian Eastern bishops who are now asking the Pope to condemn Athanasius and validate his deposition because Athanasius as a bishop is back to his old ways, persecuting Arians, and they're not happy with it. And, oh, look, now the emperor's had this council in Arles that has renounced him, so you need to validate this as the pope. And this is not something that Pope Liberius wants to do at all. So this starts the real Athanasius interlude. The Athanasius interlude. So while this is going down, Athanasius holds a council in Alexandria in his own defense. And out of this council, he pens his own letter, signed by around 80 bishops that are actually from Egypt, defending his bishopric and his actions and his theology. And this letter arrives around the end of May to the Pope, who accepts it and upholds the decision of this council. Absolutely. You know, these are the local people. Meanwhile, in Alexandria right after this letter reaches the Pope, an imperial envoy called Montanus rocks up on Athanasius's door. He arrives on May 22nd of 353, and he tells Athanasius, Good news! The emperor is granting you a personal audience, so you should come with me to the court of the emperor. That sounds like how you die. That's exactly what it sounds like. He had not requested an audience or an interview with the emperor, who he had been so hesitant to meet with last time, so why is he now being invited? We know that Constantius is changeable. He had allowed Athanasius back to his bishopric after condemning him several times, so why, why would you go to the emperor when you know that that's probably all going to be clawed back? No way. So he does not go with the envoy, and he absolutely will stay put where he is. Oh, good. I'm glad that he has some sense. He does, but that's really not going to do him any good with the Empire either, because now he's ignoring an invitation from the Emperor. Mm, you're right. Even though the Emperor probably would have detained or killed him, he's now disobeying a direct summons from the Emperor. So you can imagine that the Emperor's pretty ticked, especially since the Pope has also upheld Athanasius's letter of defense, and so he's going to take this out on the Pope. Oh no. So he accuses Liberius of deliberately preventing peace and religious unification, and that he was suppressing the letter from the Eastern bishops complaining about Athanasius. So you're, you're only upholding this letter, not this one that's complaining about this dude. You are deliberately getting in the way of peace, he says. And, you know, this is some seriously bad news when the emperor thinks that the pope is the obstacle in between what he wants or that the Pope is an awesome scapegoat. I mean, we know how that usually ends. Yep. But Liberius does not take this accusation lying down. And he responds to the Emperor in a letter titled Obsecro Tranquillissime Imperator, which means, please, gentle Emperor. I couldn't find a direct English translation of the letter, 
but it is said to be very dignified and touching, where he defends himself extremely well. He explains that he didn't suppress the letter of the Eastern bishops. In fact, he had read it out to a council in Rome when it had been received. However, the letter that had arrived from Athanasius at the same time was signed by a much higher number of bishops, and therefore it would be impossible to condemn Athanasius when the majority of his local bishops were on his side defending both his orthodoxy and his actions. He also throws in humbly that he had not asked to be pope. He had been elected and consecrated, so, quote, he followed his predecessors in all things. And this is a great excuse. You know, blame all the decisions you have to make that are tough on the people who are already dead and gone and can't be punished for it. <laughs> yeah. It is a great strategy for apostolic succession. And on account of the decisions that had been made by Liberius's predecessors, he couldn't make peace with the Eastern bishops until they agreed to condemn Arius and his teachings. They're already, they're still in communion with figures who had already been excommunicated all the way back in the time of Alexander, of the Bishop of Alexandria. He even points out that the emperor had not provided a fair council and was the actual one who was suppressing things with the Council of Arles. You know, you're actually the one that's doing the whole meddling with peace thing. Ooh, don't tell him that. Oh, then he hedges his bets, just in case this is too risky, and once again says, okay, so I'm saying it's you, but, you know, we could just forget this whole thing and have another council. Let's, let's, let's just, just have an official council. Let's end all the madness. Let's forget who said what. Let's just <laughs> do it all. So he sends this letter off to the emperor in Milan with three envoys this time. Do they come back or do they die? Oh, uh, well, they, things happen. But um, we are going to introduce these three envoys. Are you ready for a trio of wild names? Yeah. Okay, let's go. So the first is a deacon called Hillary. Yes. <laughs> the second is a priest called Pancratius. Well, that sounds like some sort of delicious pastry, and I want pastries now. Uh, it always reminds me of the old ancient wrestling form, Pancration. And the third is the Bishop of Cagliari, Lucifer. Oh, what a... What an unfortunate name. Yeah, I get that it means light, but also at some point, you stop, you gotta stop. And it, uh, it turns out that he, Lucifer, this Lucifer, is a very interesting character in the church. He's a staunchly orthodox defender at this time, and he is a recognized saint in Sardinia. But some accounts later from, like, St. Jerome say that he might have been excommunicated a little while later after this moment in time because he basically pulled a novation and refused to, like, offer communion to people who rejoined the church. Oh. Yeah, even when they decided they were going to accept the Nicene Creed, he's basically trying to single-handedly uphold the schism by keeping them out, so... Lucifer. <laughs> Shame on you. So these three envoys with the great names, they go to Milan, and they present the emperor with this letter from Liberius. And shockingly, this doesn't make Constantius fly off the handle. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a big shocker. He actually decides, okay, let's, let's have that council. But we're going to have it here in Milan for the spring of 355, where I am. So you must come to me. Could be worse. Oh, uh, yeah, it could be worse. So since there is going to be a council, 
Liberius then writes to Eusebius of Vericelli. A new Eusebius. <laughs> This is a new Eusebius. Not that Eusebius or that Eusebius. They are multiplying like you would not believe. So at this point, you know, we're, we're dealing with this, um, our Eusebius, that Eusebius, our source, uh, he died in 340. So he's gone now. Oh no, I'm going to miss him. And Eusebius of Nicomedia, responsible for the ongoing push of Arianism, Died in 341. Okay, well, at least Eusebii are dropping like flies so that we can then introduce new ones. Yep, pretty much. He writes to Eusebius of Vericelli to ask him to attend the conference to assist the papal legates and to use his substantial influence as a prominent anti-Arian in the area to ensure that the council went the right way on the Nicene Creed and on the issue of Athanasius. Initially, this Eusebius had not wanted to attend the council because he didn't think it would actually be possible to come to terms with the Arians and that they would just insist on using their own creed, that creed of Sirmium that we talked about last week with the Amuanian phrase, which means not similar, to describe the nature of the father and the son, and that they would also just insist on exiling Athanasius and that Constantius would give them their way because that's what he's done so far. But now the Pope is requesting that Eusebius be present to aid the legates. So he goes, crap, I guess I gotta go. So he went. When the council was convened at the Basilica Nova, right away, things are not off to a good start. The Arian attendance was overwhelmingly higher than the Orthodox bishops from the West. And when this Eusebius wanted to open the council with having every bishop sign their name to an affirmation of the Nicene Creed, the way the Pope wanted it to be, the Arians basically said, hell no. And one of the Arians, a guy called Valens of Mercia, took the creed that had been printed out and ripped it up. Oh. Not good. Someone spent time writing that. It wasn't, like, printed from a computer. <laughs> yeah, there is no copies that way, for sure. So he just rips it right up. Rude. So things are not starting off well. So Constantius just blows past everyone, and he storms in and orders all of the bishops to declare Athanasius guilty of a political crime. A political crime? Yeah, he says, no, it doesn't matter which one. Just take my word for it and do it. He's disrupting the peace, and I want him gone. Get rid of him now, because I said so. Temper tantrums all around. So the Eastern bishops and Dionysius, the bishop of Milan who city this is all happening in, is definitely feeling the pressure of the bishops and the emperor being in his city, and they all decide that they're ready to agree on this, but obviously this goes over like a lead balloon for the papal legates and Eusebius, who adamantly argue against both the rejection of the creed and the condemnation of Athanasius. They absolutely refuse to go along with this. As they should. So they're exiled. No! Eusebius and Lucifer and Pancratius are exiled, but for some reason, Hillary gets beat up before he's exiled. Oh no! <laughs> also rude. And Dionysius, the Bishop of Milan, gets deposed and exiled because he showed a little bit of hesitation at one point, and so they make a new Arian Bishop of Milan. Oh my god. We have Athanasius recording on the events, and he says, <laughs> Okay, let's see what salt this man has. 
Who can narrate such atrocities as they have perpetrated? A short time ago, when the churches were in the enjoyment of peace, and when the people were assembled for prayer, Liberius, Bishop of Rome, Paulinus, Bishop of the Metropolis of Gaul, Dionysius, Bishop of the Metropolis of Italy, Luciferus, Bishop of the Metropolis of the Isles of Sardinia, and Eusebius, Bishop of the one of the cities of Italy, were all exemplary bishops and preachers of the truth. They were seized and driven into exile for no other cause because they could not assent to the Arian heresy nor sign the false accusation which had been framed against us. It is unnecessary that I should speak of the great Hosius, that aged and faithful confessor of the faith, for everyone knows that he was also sent into banishment. Of all the bishops, he is the most illustrious. What council can be mentioned in which he did not preside and convince all present by the power of his reasoning? What church still does not refrain from the glorious memorials of his protection? Did anyone ever go to him sorrowing and not leave him rejoicing? Whoever asked his aid and did not obtain all that he desired? Yet they had the boldness to attack this great man, simply because, from his knowledge of the impiety of their calumnies, he refused to affix his signature of to their artful accusations against us. So he's saying, what the hell? You are exiling all these wonderful people, especially Hosius. Hosius of Cordoba, the most holy man. He was exiled at this time, by the way. He didn't actually get exiled right at the council. It probably would have been a bad PR move. Yeah. But he refused to comply with what Constantius wanted. They let him return home. And then he gets a letter from Constantius that tries to force him to comply. And Hosius wrote a letter indicating he wasn't going to do that. So then he got exiled. Fair. So we have at least four people in exile over this matter. And Pope Liberius writes them all a letter called the Quamus Sub Imagina, which is honoring their suffering and calling them martyrs. And just like in his letter to Hosius from before, he laments that he wasn't there to be the, quote, first to suffer and set an example to his flock. He's like, oh, I can't believe I wasn't there. I would have absolutely refused to give in and I would have gone into exile with you oh, it's so terrible that I couldn't set that example. And he asks for them to pray for him so that he would too be worthy of the honor that they now had as martyrs of the church, even though they're still alive, by the way. This is more of a confessor situation. Yeah. Turns out Liberius is going to get his wish and he's probably going to realize just how far he stuck his foot in his own mouth when he does. Constantius was really annoyed that he'd been met with resistance by the papal legates, even though he gets his way in the end. He really wants the Pope to agree to his demands. He wants him to sign these decrees of the Council of Milan. Like, to the point where a future historian, Ammianus, describes that, quote, he strove with burning desire that his condemnation should be confirmed by the higher authority in the eternal city. Notice me, senpai. Athanasius gives us a record of this in his History of the Arians, where he says, quote, When they perceived that he was an orthodox man and hated the Arian heresy, and earnestly endeavored to persuade all persons to renounce and withdraw from it, these impious men reasoned thus with themselves, If we can persuade Liberius, we shall soon prevail over all. So they really, really, really want to get the Pope on side. So the question is why? And this is important for a number of different reasons, or a, a combination of reasons, but it, it boils down to 
two real possibilities. And this is, was this about enforcing his imperial authority across the board over the church? Or is this more about the Pope's decision being seen as the utmost in legitimacy? Right? Because that's a question that we need to ask for, for Papatum and Valium. Was papal primacy given more weight than is interpreted in this time period? And if so, is this acknowledgement of Constantius as the only figure higher in the church than the Bishop of Alexandria is the Pope? And alternatively, is this about Christianity or is this about Rome? Something to think about. Any way we look at it, the outcome is the same, that Constantius needed the Pope to come around to his viewpoint. So he dispatches one of his most trusted subordinates, his prefect of the bedchamber. <laughs> oh, sorry. Prefect of the bedchamber, the eunuch Eusebius. Another one. Another Eusebius, yeah. But this one is the eunuch of the bedchamber. The eunuch of the bedchamber, exactly. So he dispatches him to Rome to meet with the Pope. And Eusebius the eunuch meets with the Pope, quote, with letters and offerings to cajole him with the presents and to threaten him with the letters. The eunuch went accordingly to Rome and first proposed to Liberius to subscribe against Athanasius and to hold communion with the Arians, saying, the emperor wishes it and commands you to do so. And then shewing him the offerings, he took him by the hand and again besought him, saying, obey the emperor and receive these. This is a quote from Athanasius's History of the Arians, chapter 35. So, uh, I'm going to threaten you to do what I want. But also give you presents. Yeah, if you do it, I will give you gifts. So Liberius's response was to deny the command of the emperor on the grounds that the two councils, assembled from all parts of the world, had already officially and fairly acquitted Athanasius of any wrongdoing. He says, quote, who will approve of our conduct if we reject his absence once, whose presence amongst us we gladly welcomed and admitted him to our communion? This is no ecclesiastical canon, nor have we had transmitted to us any such tradition from the fathers, who in turn received their great and blessed apostle Peter. But if the emperor is really concerned for the peace of the church, if he requires our letters respecting Athanasius to be reversed, let their proceedings both against him and against all the others be reversed also. And then let an ecclesiastical court be called at a distance from the court, at which an emperor shall not be present, nor any count be admitted, nor magistrate to threaten us, but where only the fear of God and the apostolical rule shall prevail, so that in its place the faith of the church may be secure, as the Father defined it at the Council of Nicaea, and the supporters of the Arian doctrines may be cast out, and their heresy anathematized. And then, after that, an inquiry be made against the charges brought against Athanasius and any other besides, as well as into those things of which other party is accused. Let the culprits be cast out and the innocent receive encouragement and support. For it is impossible that they who maintain an impious creed can be admitted as members of the council. Nor is it fit that any inquiry into matters of conduct should precede the inquiry concerning the faith. But all diversity of opinions on points of faith ought first to be eradicated, and then the inquiry made into matters of conduct. Our Lord Jesus Christ did not heal them that were afflicted until they declared what faith they had in him. These things we received from the fathers, these report to the emperor, for they are both profitable for him and edifying for the church. 
So no, Liberius would not condemn Athanasius until all the depositions and all of the condemnations were annulled so that a proper council that ratified the Nicene Creed was done and that all those who didn't accept it were anathematized. Nothing else would happen until that got done. And then and only then could they look at issues of conduct and legitimate bishops. He's basically saying bribery with gifts is not going to work. Threats from the emperor is not going to work. None of that is going to change his mind. And Eusebius the eunuch is absolutely pissed because he knows that there is no way to come back from this mission unsuccessfully and still be received favorably by the emperor. So he knows that when he goes back, it's not going to be good for him. Yeah. But he leaves, and on his way, he leaves the gifts that he'd brought, intending to bribe the Pope with. He leaves them at the tomb of St. Peter, symbolically. And this infuriates Liberius. He sees this as an unlawful sacrifice, or even like sacrilege to the rock of apostolic power. How dare you let a man leave his bribes for the rock of the church? He gets so angry with the guards who are responsible for the tomb for not having stopped or casting away the gifts. You don't leave the first pope of the church tainted goods. <laughs> so when Eusebius gets wind of this, he writes to the emperor again and says, okay, the issue with, with Liberius is so much more than we thought it was. It's not just that he doesn't want to condemn Athanasius. He's now like shying away our gifts. Basically, he, he kind of exaggerates and tells the emperor that uh, Liberius is excommunicating them. Mm. That is not what Constantius wants. So when Constantius hears this, that the Pope is refusing him, taking steps in the opposite direction, excommunicating him, etc., he orders Leontius, the prefect of Rome, and the Palatine officers to seize Liberius and drag him to Constantius. Not good. All the way to Milan. And apparently when this happened, it set off a really bad situation in Rome itself for the Christians. If we're to take Athanasius at his word, pious Christian women suddenly had to hide or leave the city, monks were in danger, Christian foreigners who had settled in Rome were forced out, and orders became strictly guarded to keep Orthodox Christians from coming to Liberius and offering of support. So if you are an Orthodox Christian, you are not allowed to leave Rome right now because you're not allowed to go and support the Pope we just dragged off. Bad news. So Liberius is brought before the Emperor to answer for his intransigence, and he stood his ground. He refused to condemn Athanasius or pull back from his refusal to accept the Arians into communion. This is what he allegedly said. He said, Cease to persecute the Christians. Attempt not by my means to introduce impiety in the Church. We are ready to suffer anything rather than to be called Arian madmen. We are Christians. Compel us not to become enemies of Christ. We also give you this counsel. Fight not against him who gave you this empire, nor show impiety towards him instead of thankfulness. Persecute not that believe in him, lest you also hear the words, It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Nay, I would that you might hear him, that you might obey, as the holy Paul did. Behold, here we are, we are come, before the fabricate changes. For this cause we hasten thither, knowing that banishment awaits us at your hands, that we might suffer before a charge encounters us, and that all may clearly see that others too have suffered as we shall suffer, and that the charges brought against them were fabrication of their enemies, 
and all their proceedings were calumny and falsehood. You are doing the wrong thing, and I have a feeling I know how this is going to go for me, so I'm going to call you out on it. And unsurprisingly, Constantius is not impressed at all. And he only offers the Pope three days to think it over and says, if in three days you don't come around to the decision I want, you are going into exile. But this didn't sway Liberius. Remember, this is a man who's like, I would rather die than agree to this. So he told them he didn't need three days. He doesn't need any deliberation. He's not changing his mind. So if, if he's got to go into exile, he's going into exile. Let's go. There's actually a, a dialogue version of this preserved by Theodoret. And uh, I'm not going to read it to you here because we're going to release it as a special bonus episode in the same week that this comes out. So in a couple days, you're going to get an extra short little bonus dramatic reading in your feed, listeners. Ooh, dramatic. Yeah, it's voiced by our wonderful friend, David Cheely, who did all of the voices, and it's great. I don't know if you've listened to it yet. I haven't. I'm... Because I have to assemble it. Yes. So it it is excellent. He's done a great job with the voices. So hopefully, listeners, you enjoy that, because it's going to be great. He's officially exiled to Baroea in Thrace, which is modern-day southern Bulgaria, Greece, and Turkey kind of area. So it's been a while since we've had a pope in exile. So that's a thing we're coming back to. Maybe Constantius realized that he was returning to a precedent that he wasn't particularly happy about. So it's said that on his way to exile, the emperor sent the pope 500 gold pieces to cover his exile expenses. And Liberius kind of told him to take his money and shove it. We get this account from Zosimin. It is said when he was being led to exile, the emperor sent him 500 pieces of gold. Pope Liberius, however, refused him and said to the messenger who brought them, Go and tell him who sent this gold to give it to the flatterers and hypocrites that surround him, for their insatiable greed plunges them into a state of perpetual want which can never be relieved. Christ, who is in every way like his father, supplies us with food and with all good things. So uh, take your money and shove it. So we have, we have a slightly different account that's followed up by, by Theodoret as well, who says, The empress sent him the same amount. But he sent it to the emperor, saying, If he does not need it, let him give it to Oxentius, the bishop of Milan, or Epictetus, who wants such things. Eusebius the eunuch brought him yet more money, and he says, You have laid waste the churches of the world, the pope broke out, and do you bring me alms to a condemned man? Go first and become a Christian. So he is denying the faith of Eusebius the eunuch, so there's that. Oh, this is so intense. And guess what? It's about to get more intense because the Pope has refused his money and Constantius goes, well, fine. And he decides that if the Pope is going to be like that, well, then he's just not going to be Pope anymore. So he orders Liberius's archdeacon, a man called Felix, to become the Pope. An another Fela? Yeah, this is anti-Pope number four. Ooh, we made it. Yes. And poor, poor anti-Pope Felix who is called Felix II because we've had an official Pope Felix, episode 28, he's not going to have a good time of things. Though he was generally accepted by the clergy to the new role that he was basically forced to occupy, the Christian people of Rome are not having any of it. They are, are not happy that their Pope has been sent away for something that had nothing to do with a canonical misdeed. And they're 
even less happy that the emperor is messing with matters of the church. So they pretty much completely ignore anti-pope Felix. Wow. Yeah, poor guy. I feel a little bit bad for him. We we have an episode coming out this month about him in more detail, so. We have so many things coming out. Yeah, it's a good month. It's a good month of bonuses. Uh, this is all of my buttering everybody up for when I go away for two weeks in April. Whoops. <laughs> Making me do all this work so you can leave. I am. Hey, I'm giving you all the work so that you, you actually have it prepared, so. I know. So, Constantius actually comes to Rome in April of 357, two years after the exile, and he realizes just how badly this is going outside of the immediate clergy. Like, immediately as soon as he gets there, people start pressing upon him on all levels to bring the Pope back. Ammianus tells us in particular that the Emperor was moved by noble women who pleaded for the return of the Pope, quote, whose husbands had insufficient courage for the venture. So the women are begging the emperor because the men are a little bit too afraid to do it. So Constantius was seeing firsthand that his banishment had done a lot more harm than good. So he allows Liberius to be recalled from exile, where he thought it would be a great idea for the two men to rule jointly as co-popes. This is Constantius's great idea. Co-popes. Co-popes. Yeah. But before we get into how that is going to go... We have to get into the whole bit that makes this whole situation a lot more complicated than what I just told you would seem. Because all of this may have been happening for an entirely different reason, beyond just Constantine going to Rome and witnessing the turmoil that he was causing, and so he decides, oh, I'm going to allow Liberius to come back. And this is an issue that historians are still widely arguing about and don't really know for sure, so we're going to get really messy here. The short version of this theory is that in late 357, after two years of exile, Liberius goes to Sirmium, where the Arians are having their third council, and he is dejected, and he is defeated, so he agrees to sign a version of the Creed of Sirmium, which will confirm Arianism and condemn Athanasius, and submit himself fully to the will of the emperor. And this is why he's allowed back in Rome. Okay. If this happened, this is a, a massive, massive deal. Like, this this would be a full 20 score in Fructus Prohibitum, because this would be the Pope committing heresy, confirming Arianism. This is what people think happened. But did it happen? This is a question we have to speculate on pretty wildly at some points, because historians are quite sure this might have happened. So the first thing we need to look at is what evidence do we have that it, it did happen, right? Did the Pope commit heresy? The first and foremost evidence that we have that this may have actually happened was that it was the rumor at the time following Liberius's return to Rome. This is not a story that comes up a hundred years later to discredit him. It doesn't give it a whole lot of validity, but the fact that it started immediately and is happening in his own time period does give it slightly more weight. This is something that people are talking about while he's still alive. And we also can't pretend that we're entirely source-free here. There are actual historical accounts of Liberius's lapse from church historians, including, I know not the greatest example, but the Liber Pontificalis, hmm. which <laughs> mentions that Liberius yields to heresy and and then we have Athanasius himself saying that this happened. He says, 
But Liberius, after he had been in banishment two years, gave way, and from fear of threatened death, subscribed. Yet even this only shews their violent conduct and the hatred of Liberius against heresy and his support of Athanasius, so long as he was suffered to exercise a free choice. For that which men are forced by torture to do things contrary to their first judgment ought not to be considered the willing deed of those who are in fear, but rather of their tormentors. So he's, he's kind of trying to, you know, support and defend this pope that he does believe has condemned him and accepted Arianism. And remember that Athanasius is a contemporary source. Mm-hmm. This is not looking good. Now, St. Jerome, who is a massive church historian a little bit later on, also references the rumor with a relative degree of belief, and recounts Liberius's return with, Liberius, conquered by the tedium of exile and subscribing to heretical wickedness, entered Rome in triumph. Two sources that say he did it. Okay. Zosimin's account isn't so direct in suggesting that Liberius actually lapsed, but definitely identifies the source of the rumor. He says, For when Eudoxius and his partisans at Antioch, who favored the heresy of Aetius, received the letter of Hosius, they circulated the report that Liberius, that Liberius had renounced the term consubstantial and had admitted that the son is dissimilar from the father. After these enactments had been made by the Western bishops, the emperor permitted Liberius to return to Rome. So he's saying, yeah, this, this is a thing that was being circulated at the time. And then there are three letters that are attributed to Liberius himself, preserved in the, quote, historical fragments of St. Hilary of Poitiers. We're not going to go into too much depth about these letters because they've been proven to be a forgery. And even Hilary, in his preservation of the letters, makes it clear that he doesn't buy into them either. So one source down, but three source, you know. The first of these letters is the student's Pacai letter, which accounts Liberius addressing Arian bishops, explaining that he is willing to open communion with them. He explains that he was hesitant to condemn Athanasius on the basis of his predecessor, Pope Julius, had absolved him of any guilt, but since he had summoned Athanasius to Rome and Athanasius had refused to come, Liberius was ready to change things. Obviously, this letter doesn't really fit our narrative anyways, and Hilary kind of thinks this letter was forced by Fortunatius, a bishop of Aquileia, who had submitted to the decisions of the Council of Milan and then used this letter to make his own decisions look less awful. The other letters that are preserved in this are a parody letters that are based off some original legitimate letters written by Liberius, where they take the actual sentiments of the original letters and turn them into the exact opposite. And those ones were definitely written by future schismatics. If you want to look at those listeners, those are the Pro Deifico Timore, the Quia Cioa, the Non Doceo, and they are parodies of the Obsecro letter, the Quaramis letter, and the letter to Hosius, respectively. Now, we've gone over them a little bit. The last thing I want to say about these letters, besides being obvious forgeries, is that St. Hilary himself, who preserved these letters, still thought that Liberius had indeed fallen and renounced Athanasius. So he thought that these letters, even though they were forgeries, were constructed to emphasize something that was real. Zosimin also challenges these letters, calling them a fraud perpetrated by Eudoxius, who is a prominent Arian who had every reason to undermine Liberius's credibility, and who had just come to the Sea of Antioch and only wanted to increase his own legitimacy. The only source that we have for sure that makes a comment that is legitimately verified to its source 
is from St. Hilary, who wrote to Constantius and mentioned regarding Liberius, quote, I know not whether it was with greater impiety that you exiled him or that you restored him. Interesting. Oh, this is so complicated. Yeah, we can verify that this is the source of this, but we don't actually even know what he means by that. That's kind of a tricky one. Most of the sources are Arians like Philostorgius who write with certainty about Liberius signing their creed, but of course they would say that. But here's the thing. I mean, we have to consider what we know about Liberius to this point. Has he just been talking out of his ass this whole time about wishing he was able to stand up for his faith, which he wrote about at least twice? We've seen him fighting for orthodoxy this whole time, and he's willing to go into exile over this. And he goes into exile for two years. Why would he suddenly relent when he's honored with this new status of being one of these confessors? It seems unlikely, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated one, and we don't have a secure answer on this. So we're going to have to make some judgments when we get to Fructus Prohibitum. Now, moving on in the narrative, not to just keep going over this in a circular fashion, whether we believe that Liberius was recalled for submitting and lapsing, or that he was recalled because Constantius realized he'd made a terrible mistake in Rome, he still gets to return to Rome, and he does it in triumph. He is welcomed back by the people of Rome so excitedly. And that whole Constantius's decree that he and Felix should be co-popes goes right out the window. <laughs> the people of Rome violently and forcibly expel Felix right out of the city, apparently while chanting, One God, One Christ, One Bishop. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. Hey, Pope Felix. That is so unfortunate. It really is. We have no account, by the way, of the people of Rome or the clergy of Rome having any criticism for Liberius for lapsing, which might help us be led to believe that it didn't happen or that no one knew about it. But he is welcomed back as a hero and a champion of the faith. And we will cover what happened to Antipope Felix after this time on Patreon, so you should definitely join us there. But then, he's back in Rome, and another council was called by Constantius to <sighs> settle the Arian controversy. Again! Oh my god. It goes so well when this happens. This time, the council is in Rimini, in Italy, in 359, for the Western bishops, with a simultaneous council at Seleucia for the Eastern bishops. They, they were originally going to have their council in Nicomedia, but Nicomedia got hit by an earthquake at this time, so. Seleucia and Rimini. And neither Liberius nor Antipope Felix were invited to attend either of these councils. The papacy was literally barred from partaking in the discussion of orthodoxy here, so that's a thing. Gross. But this was going to be to Liberius's benefit in the long run, because although it looks bad initially, the council did exactly what you'd expect under Constantius's thumb. It's forced to accept a semi-Arian position, which, although they don't quite say that father and son are of a different substance, they also don't say that they're the same, so it's kind of like a middle ground that just goes against both the Creed of Sirmium and the Nicene Creed. So we have another useless council, which Liberius, because he wasn't even invited, could just openly criticize and disapprove of, uh -huh. because he hadn't been involved. And as soon as Emperor Constantius II finally dies in 361, 
Liberius issued an annulment of all of the decrees from the council, anathematizes the Arian Creed and the Semi-Arian Creed, and pronounced that bishops who had signed the Arian Creed could be reaccepted into the church if they renounced Arianism and affirmed the Creed of Nicaea. And a few years later, he would receive a lot of those semi-Arian bishops from the East, led by Eustathius, to have them come forward and confirm the Nicene Creed and be accepted into communion. So things are finally starting to look up, but it took the death of the emperor. <laughs> it's looking okay for the moment. The semi-Arians accepted back are going to cause all sorts of further problems when we start talking about the Holy Ghost. But for the moment, things are looking up for Pope Liberius. And then he dies. Wow. Liberius died on September 24th of 366, and we can assume natural causes. There are, there are some historians that suggest that Liberius resigned his papacy the year before his death in 365 when Antipope Felix died to bring everything to a close and make sense again, but there is no documentation for this whatsoever, so highly disputed. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It might have made sense for Felix to do it if Liberius had died first, since he, you know, he was the one that was legitimately elected pope. But Liberius does outlive him, so I can't see a good reason for this. And and the, the next pope will be elected within a week of Liberius's death. So if he had resigned the papacy for a year, why would they wait a year? There is an epitaph preserved in a 7th century text that our papal archaeologist, Giovanni Battista de Rossi, felt belonged to Pope Liberius. But other historians disagree with him, including Duquesne's and Funk, and the latter, Funk, attributes it to an entirely different pope, Pope Martin, which is not even a close enough name, so. And fair enough, what I could find on his epitaph only says vague things like he confirmed the Nicene faith in council and he died in exile for the faith, which, um, you know, may not actually fit Liberius anyway. So we don't know if he has an epitaph. We don't know where he's buried. We don't know any of the things we normally know. We've lost a body. We have lost a body. An entire pope. We have. But we're going to end this episode with a small, secondary Athanasius interlude. The Athanasius interlude. Because while we mentioned a lot of what was going on with Liberius in relation to Athanasius in the episode, we didn't really visit our bishop in Alexandria and see what was happening for him. And, and because we are going to do a whole episode on his life on Patreon, this is just a short one. Summarize the current journey, okay? So, we left Athanasius and Julius's episode in 346, having triumphantly returned to his bishopric, with Constantius's permission. And he gets to have ten years of peace actually doing his job. Ten years! It's such a wonderful time. But then, of course, as we've seen, Constantius's mind changed by then, and he tries to have Athanasius recondemned and kicked back out, which he does in that Council of Milan in 355. This time, when he's kicked back out, Constantius sends armed men after Athanasius. That seemed excessive. While he's giving a church service, no less. That's extra excessive. These men storm the church in the hopes of arresting him and probably killing him. But Athanasius gets away and heads to the desert in Upper Egypt, and he will spend the next six years living with the desert monks. We're going to talk about the desert monks in his episode. Pretty cool. Is this the second exile of Athanasius? This is the third exile of Athanasius. Oh my god. I've lost count. 
Oh, there's so many. Um, and he will stay there until Emperor Julian, who is Constantius's successor, issues an edict of clemency to recall bishops in February of 362. But Julian soon grows jealous of the influence that Athanasius has over his people and his bishopric, and so by October of the same year, he renews Athanasius's banishment, so he has to go back to the desert monks until Julian dies, and his successor, Jovian, reinstates him in 363. So that's four. And he arrives back home in February 364, and then Jovian dies, also in February 364. And by October, again, Emperor Valens kicks him out again. Poor Athanasius. Yes. That's another quick summary of, like, three exiles, so uh, we're going to leave him there for now. And now, we need to rate Pope Liberius. All right, let's rate this wild story. I may have gotten a headache. So, so many things about this poor Pope man. <laughs> so, papatum. Infallium. There are a lot of things to consider with his papacy here. So in summary, the division with the Arians is not over. The next papacy is going to see a lot of violence because of this. We have an anti-pope situation. <laughs> There's going to be more anti-popes because of this situation. Uh, he's important enough, maybe, that the Basilica de Santa Maria Maggiore is sometimes called the Liberian Basilica in his honor. So he's still relatively recognized within the church. His impact is recorded to history. You know, we have Pope Anastasius from the 5th century backing him up as someone who would have died rather than commit heresy. St. Ambrose will call him an exceedingly holy man. Theodoret calls him a glorious athlete of the faith, and he's our most detailed source. Pope Pius IX says he was innocent and falsely accused. Pope Benedict XV admires his fearless entry into exile and his defense of the faith. But his reputation does continue to suffer, especially with Protestant and Gallican writers who will use him as a precedent to attack the papacy, attack papal infallibility, and modern historian Warren H. Carroll calls him a weak man. But the big thing here is papal infallibility. And we haven't really dealt with papal infallibility as a permanent concept yet, because it's still not something that the church is talking about. But this historian I mentioned, Warren H. Carroll, wrote an entire article about how Pope Liberius, who he believes is guilty, has an impact on the idea of papal infallibility as a whole. So um, I'm just going to read you a couple quotes and, and things that I got out of his article, and we can decide whether or not we agree with him, and that's what we can judge our score on. So he says, Though Pope Liberius did condemn St. Athanasius under heavy pressure from his captors, he refused to sign a clearly Arian statement of faith. But he did sign an equivocal statement which could be interpreted as either Orthodox or Arian. The infallibility of the papacy was therefore preserved even under Liberius's weak leadership. He says, But popes are not infallible when making excommunications or any disciplinary judgment for they are limited by the information they have on the individual or situation in question. They are only infallible in making doctrinal pronouncements ex cathedra. It is vitally important to always remember that a pope has two kinds of authority. Magisterial, when he is speaking ex cathedral, that is, which is a way intended to be binding on the faithful, in which he is infallible, and administrative as head of the church, appointed by Christ to govern it, which includes excommunications and so on, in which he is fallible. 
The Pope is not infallible when exercising his governing authority, but still must be obeyed when he does so as long as his orders apply clearly to the church rather than to temporal affairs. And for the Pope's authority over the church is a God-given right and there is no appeal from earth. So basically he's saying, if you were looking at papal infallibility as a concept, you could look at Liberius as potentially a target of why that's a problem. And that's why the church has to separate when a pope speaks ex cathedra, like from the church, from the throne, and, as being infallible, and human fallibility. Because Liberius, if he's guilty, has lots of human fallibility. And this could hurt the church. And other people have had to write huge defenses on it because of people like Liberius. So how exactly do we want to score him in this category? Oh, man. It's a tough one. It is really... Ugh. All right. I'm going to give him a three. Okay. He was trying his best. And, like, that's all I can ask of him. But mm -hmm. it's not like it went the right way. It definitely didn't. My, my judgment on this one is I'm going to give him a five. And I'll explain why. Because... Regardless of whether he was guilty or innocent, the impact that this moment has on the papacy comes all the way down to modern historians having to write about papal infallibility and having to look at him and going, what does this mean for the church? So five is middle of the road because that's neither a good nor a bad impact really on the church, but there is so much discussion, there is so much thought that has gone into it because of people like Marcellinus because of people like Liberius. And that is what's going to shape how the papacy looks in the world from here on out. So I'm going to give him the five, and that gives him an eight for Papatum Amphalium. Fructus prohibitum. Okay, we have to decide whether or not he's guilty. Because I think we can both agree that if the Pope committed heresy, that's got to be an automatic 20. Yeah... That's bad. It has to be a 10 out of 10 for both of us in that one. And, you know, we can we can take this in pieces, though. Yes. If we think that he condemned Athanasius, but didn't sign the Arian Creed, you could give him points for condemning Athanasius. You know, the, the Arian Creed is the big one here. Do we believe the evidence? You know, I can't, I can't believe almost anything about him. At, you know, like... <laughs> It was all just a mess. It was a hot garbage pile. It was. But he tried so hard. He did his best. I do have to say, though, that the implications of a possible scandal is an automatic five. Okay. Because that's what we did prior. And I think that's fair. Because, you know, this is, this is a de debate that even among modern historians is totally divided. There are people who absolutely believe he's innocent. There are absolutely people who believe he's entirely guilty. There's some who think, you know, maybe he condemned Athanasius, but he didn't do the other piece. You know, and the, and the people who think he did do it think he did it under duress and torture and, and whatnot. Not that it matters per se how he did it, but if he did it. And I am inclined to believe for what I have read in all of the sources about when he was actively participating in his own papacy, then more than likely it didn't happen. Yeah. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me that this man who literally stared down the emperor and said, 
nope, guess I'm going exile. That he would suddenly, after two years in exile, go, this isn't very fun anymore. You know, like, it doesn't, unless he was being threatened with death. I could see it then. Even then, he would probably. Yeah, it's a hard one. So I think I'm going to meet you in the middle by giving him a couple points because I don't believe the heresy bit. I think a 10 is fair because then it's middle of the line. If it's bad, it's bad. If he's innocent, he's innocent. So we can hedge our bets, you know? Yes, for sure. So that is a 10 for Fructus Prohibitum. Secular Rai Impactum. Uh, this is, this is definitely a papacy with an impact on the church. Um, it doesn't have a whole lot going on for the secular world, though. Or even, even the Christian laity, really. They, they just, um, they like him. Clearly, the, the general population of Rome really like him. The only thing I could really find in a secular sort of way are there are, are some websites that are trying to champion his reputation. And, yeah, okay, that's a religious thing, but it's on the internet, which I consider it a secular thing, and I always put modern pop culture in this category. The internet is for porn. Did you forget? Well, it's also for championing the reputation of Liberius, so there's that. It's hard to score in this category. I have to give him I have to give him one just because there's an anti-pope situation and that definitely had an effect on the people of Rome. But that's it. Yeah, but that anti-pope situation was ordered by petty emperors it was but it had an impact on the the laity people so they had to deal with these shenanigans no i think your one is probably good enough okay that's fair tempus pontificus may 17th 352 to september 24th 366 which is 14 years gives him a score of 3.5 now Without some persecutions, we'll see that our popes are staying around for a little bit, so we have some chunky papacies. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do, 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 do. Nope! No? He is our first uncanonized pope in the whole of the early church. <laughs> he is not a saint! What? He is the first person to get a zero in this category. Wh what? Yeah! But this comes with a little bit of a caveat, okay? So, he's not a saint in the Roman Catholic Church, but he is a saint in the Eastern Orthodox Church, with a feast day of August 27th, specifically cited because of his resistance of Arianism. Okay. So he's a saint, but he's not a saint, but he's not getting his bonus point because he is not a saint in the Catholic Church, and we cannot make him a patron saint of anything. We wondered how long it would take us to get to this point. Here we are. The first no. Yeah. And then I realized we didn't do Facium Sanctus, so we're going to jump back and do that. I was just so excited about saying no. No. Facium Sanctus. Okay, are you ready? Are you ready to see this man's face? I am never ready for these faces. Okay. You gotta know that by now. I have a very strong reaction to this picture for some reason. Is it going to be a, a pile of hot garbage like the rest of his life? You know, I have... I Well... Here you go. Look at it and you tell me. Mmm, he looks like he's seen a dumpster fire. He looks so sorry. He looks like a dog that got <laughs> caught chewing the couch. He's not allowed on the couch. He looks so sorry about it. <laughs> he knocked over the trash or something. <laughs> and then chewed it all up and left it all over and the house. Yeah. And, and the owner came back and went, who did this? 
That's exactly, that is the kicked puppy face. And he just looks so, so sorry. This is the most straight on one I think we've seen. Mm-hmm. It is, yeah, he's looking you dead in the face and he is like, I apologize. <laughs> Nothing about it is um, not funny to me. I actually, because I did, I have, I'm several weeks ahead in the research whenever we do this. So before we record, I always go back and make sure, you know, I've saved the right pictures and I've done all of that thing. And I opened this up the other day to double check and I just started laughing. <laughs> oh my God, though. He looks so sad. He looks so sad. So for me, this is an eight. An eight? I mean, he just looks so sad. He's trying his best. I'll give him a, I'll give him a four. Okay. I have just seen this look on my dog's face when he has stolen a dish rag. So he is going to get a total of three uh, in this category. So three out of five. It's a pretty good score. Oh, it's a new Discord feature where you can favorite things to use them again later. <laughs> well, I mean, if you send me this sorry looking Pope man when you've done something wrong, I may just laugh. Total score. So his total score is a 25.5. He somehow scored higher than I thought he would. Yeah, you know, that's pretty chunky. He's in 11th place. It's interesting. That is very interesting. You know, this is a man that I have developed some real sympathy for. So I kind of like that. I like that he's very much kind of in the middle now. That's cool. So now, I think we actually have a discussion on our hands here because I have to ask you, is he popey enough? Is he pizzazzy enough? And has he made an impression on you for a papal bull? Oh my god, okay. Because I'm going to argue in his favor here because his reputation is such a mess, but this is a man who fought so hard, I kind of want to give it to him. He sent a sassy letter to the emperor. Who he stared the emperor that? down dead in the face. Yeah. And but then he's then he's got this stupid legacy of maybe he signed something he shouldn't have. Oh my god. Right. But even then, if if he actually did it and he committed heresy, we would 100% be giving him a papal bull because that is bananas. P-A-N-A-N-A-S. Appropriate, yes. <laughs> so, I mean, he is the first uncanonized pope that we have had. This is how significant this is. Like, if he was guilty, it would be 100%. The fact that we're debating it is the only reason. And even if he is innocent, the stuff he did or tried to do was good and ballsy. You know, I'm feeling for him. I kind of I kind of want to give it to him. All right, so is that a yes? Yeah, you've convinced me even though I got new dice and I wanted to roll my weird banana-shaped <laughs> dice. Okay, well you well, that would be appropriate considering we just did that. We will we will first say congratulations, Liberius, you've won a paper ball. Now you can roll it and see if you would have gotten in on div divine intervention. All right, my new banana-shaped one. I guess it's not really a banana shape, but it's banana-colored. How how um how many is it? A twenty? Yes. Okay, so same rules apply. One to ten is a no. Eleven to twenty is a yes. Oh, you got an eighteen. He almost got a nat oh! twenty, but it hit my book <laughs> and rolled back. Oh, so he 
Harry would have made it anyway, so we have made... He would have been straight to whatever. We haven't decided what happens if they nat 20. I think what we'll have to do... I've been thinking about this, and I think that if they get a nat 20, what we'll do is we'll give them a bonus to their point score. Because when we get to how we actually divide up our papable winners to compete against one another, their score is going to come into play. So maybe it's a automatic plus 10 to their score or something. It hit a book. It would it might have been, but we'll never know now. But he made it in in both ways. So he is our latest Papal Bull winner. That's, that's exciting. With that, uh, look in your feeds this week for the extra episode that's coming your way. It's really short, but it's really interesting. It is basically the dialogue of Liberius telling Constantius exactly where to shove it. So that's going to be fun. And as always, thank you to Totalis Rankium and Rex Factor. We can be found on most major podcatching platforms, including Spotify. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook as Pontifax Pod. Feel free to message us. We usually always respond. If you want to send us a more long-form message, request, or otherwise get a hold of us, our email is pontifaxpod at gmail.com. For our bonus episodes and exclusive content, head over to our Patreon page and donate. That's patreon.com forward slash pontifaxpod. If you feel the need to buy us a tea, because we're not really coffee drinkers, but we do love tea, you can throw us a few bucks in our PayPal account at paypal.me forward slash pontifaxpod. As always, please subscribe and rate and review on iTunes or whatever you use. It really helps us get recommended to other people and allows more people to find us. With that, we can say thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.